A big welcome back, everyone, to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast, Season 5, Episode Number 3. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was created for the hair loss practitioner, and it was created for all those who wish to dive into this fascinating world of hair loss. It was created for practitioners around the world who care for people with all different types of hair loss. Each week, I review a handful of studies that are changing how we think about hair loss. I'll introduce them to you, help you make sense of them, and give you my thoughts on how a given study just might change how we diagnose or treat hair loss. These are studies in androgenetic hair loss, alopecia areata, telogen effluvium, traction alopecia, chemotherapy-induced hair loss, scarring alopecia. These are studies in all different types of hair loss. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was created by the Donovan Hair Academy. It was created to help all those who help all those with hair loss and it was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. Today, it's my great pleasure to review five studies with you. For those of you who want a brief five-minute overview, a mini-podcast within our longer podcast, well, we'll begin that in just 30 seconds. For those of you who want a bit more detail, detail that can help you incorporate these studies into your own practice, well, you and I will dive into these together. Thanks so much for joining me today. So we begin by a study by Gupta and colleagues in the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology, June 2023. This study set out to compare how various protocols of minoxidil and 5-alpha reductase inhibitors compare in the treatment of female pattern hair loss. And the authors reviewed 11 different protocols, including finasteride, topical minoxidil at different concentrations, oral minoxidil. And what was the winner? Five milligrams of finasteride. We'll take a look at this very nice study together. Then we'll go on to look at two studies that follow the August 18th, 2022 New York Times article titled, An Old Medicine Gives New Hair for Pennies a Day, Doctors Say. That particular New York Times newspaper article created quite a stir worldwide and stimulated quite a bit of interest in oral minoxidil. We'll take a look at two publications in the medical literature that follow that particular New York Times article. The first was a study by Desir and colleagues in the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery, April 2023. These authors set out to compare commenters on the New York Times website, commenters that were posting about this particular article. And Desir and colleagues looked at differences in male commenters and female commenters. And we'll take a look at this very nice article and review some very important differences that may exist between males and females in hair loss in general and their response to this article on oral minoxidil. Then we'll go on to look at a nice study by Goodwin Cartwright and colleagues in JAMA Network Open in May 2023. These authors looked at prescriptions for oral minoxidil before the New York Times article came out and after the New York Times article came out. What did they find? Well, prescriptions for oral minoxidil spiked in August and September after the article came out and remained quite a bit above baseline in the subsequent months. We'll take a look at this nice study. And overall, how these articles in the mainstream media and social media can have such a profound impact on the public. I think that this New York Times article had a, a real impact on the public's view of oral minoxidil worldwide, and I'll give you my thoughts on oral minoxidil. And we'll look at a study by Mir Bonifay, which described two patients with periorbital edema or swelling around the eyes following their use of oral minoxidil. A nice case series of these two patients. The first was a 40-year-old male who started 5 milligrams of oral minoxidil nightly. Within four weeks, the patient discovered that he had swelling around the eyes. This swelling subsided during the day, but then the next morning, again, swelling around the eyes. When the patient switched to 3 milligrams of oral minoxidil, the swelling went away. 
The second patient was a 37-year-old female with swelling on one milligram of oral minoxidil. This time, swelling resolved in just 60 minutes in the morning. And we'll take a look at these two nice reports of periorbital edema with oral minoxidil. And we'll take a look at past studies describing this phenomenon. And we'll conclude with a nice study looking at telogen effluvium from anti-seizure medications. A study by Rosardo and colleagues in the journal Medicines from June 2023. Epilepsy affects about 1% of the U.S. population, and 1 in 26 individuals will have epilepsy over their lifetime. And anti-seizure medications have an important role in converting people to seizure-free states. Anti-seizure medications rarely cause hair loss, but it's important for us as hair practitioners to know about hair loss with anti-seizure medications because the two most common reasons why patients stop anti-seizure medications is weight gain and hair loss. So we need to know about these medications. So we'll take a look at a very nice review on telogen effluvium from anti-seizure medications. The most commonly described anti-seizure medications in the medical literature are valproic acid, carbamazepine, and lamotrigine. But other anti-seizure medications can also cause hair loss. So we'll dive into this interesting literature together and make some sense of this. The references for all of these studies are in the show notes that accompany this episode. So let's begin by a study by Gupta and colleagues published in the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology, June 2023, titled The Relative Efficacy of Monotherapy with 5-Alpha Reductase Inhibitors and Minoxidil for Female Pattern Hair Loss, a network meta-analysis study. So female pattern hair loss is one of the more common reasons why patients come into clinic to see us. By age 30, about 10 to 15% of women will have androgenetic hair loss, and this rises over the subsequent years. And by age 60, about 40% of women will have evidence of androgenetic hair loss. The treatments for androgenetic hair loss are somewhat similar to males, but there are some important differences. Topical minoxidil, oral minoxidil, antiandrogens, laser, PRP, hair transplants can be used. We use spironolactone in females. We don't use spironolactone in males on account of the increased risk of gynecomastia or breast enlargement that spironolactone causes in males. One of the important considerations in females with female pattern hair loss, especially premenopausal women, is the use of these medications in women of childbearing years, and is there any possibility that these medications could impact pregnancy? And so those are really important considerations when counseling premenopausal women. There are many, many treatments. The relative efficacy of these various treatments is not entirely clear. How do you rank them from most effective to least effective? Well, these authors, Gupta and colleagues, set out to determine how we rank various minoxidil and finasteride treatments in female pattern hair loss. This study is very similar to their 2022 study, where they sought to rank treatments for male pattern hair loss. And this was one of the top 20 studies of 2022, so do check it out if you're not familiar with this study. But let me review briefly what Gupta's 2022 study was all about in males, and then we'll dive into the 2023 study in females. So the 2022 study looked at how we rank dutasteride, finasteride, topical minoxidil, oral minoxidil in males with male pattern hair loss. What gets first place? What gets second place? What gets third place? Well, they performed a systematic review and meta-analysis of all the data in the literature looking at minoxidil, finasteride, dutasteride as monotherapy. They looked at 23 studies, 11 with 2% minoxidil, 8 with 1 milligram of finasteride, 3 studies with dutasteride, 2 with 5% minoxidil, 1 
with 5 milligrams of oral minoxidil. What was the winner? Dutasteride. Dutasteride, 0.5 milligrams, was the winner in males. Second place went to oral finasteride, 5 milligrams. And third place went to oral minoxidil, 5 milligrams. Really important study which changes how we think about the relative efficacy of these treatments in male pattern hair loss. So Gupta's back now looking at the relative efficacy of these treatments in female pattern hair loss, this new study in the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology in June. Again, the authors performed a network meta-analysis to estimate the relative efficacy of minoxidil and finasteride at any dose or route of administration. So they searched for articles in the, in the literature. There were several criteria that the article needed to have in order to be incorporated into their study. It needed to be in the English language. It needed to investigate adult women. It needed to have patients receiving the medication as monotherapy. In other words, just that agent, just topical minoxidil, or just oral minoxidil, or just oral finasteride, and it needed to report density changes at 24 weeks. So similar to the 2022 study in males, inferences about the protocol's effectiveness were based on surface under the cumulative ranking curve, or SUCRA values, a statistical method of ranking how good this treatment is at improving hair density. They pulled 13 studies from the medical literature, and these were included in their analyses. So how does one rank all these treatments? How would you put in order, from most effective to least effective, oral finasteride, oral minoxidil, topical minoxidil, at various doses and concentration? Well, the data showed that oral finasteride 5 milligrams was the winner. It was the most effective treatment at 24 weeks, followed by 5% minoxidil solution, 1 milliliter twice daily. So, oral minoxidil 5 milligrams was the winner. Topical minoxidil 5% twice a day was second. Third went to oral minoxidil 1 milligram. Topical 5% foam once a day was fourth. Minoxidil solution at 2% was inferior yet again. And oral minoxidil 0.25 was less effective by these sucra rankings compared to oral minoxidil 1 milligram. And what came in last place? Oral finasteride 1 milligram. When you look at the actual sucra rankings, which gives some sort of a numerical ranking to the potential for these to improve density at 24 weeks, you can see a number of really important findings. First, you can see that oral finasteride and topical minoxidil 5% solution twice daily are fairly similar in their sucra rankings. Oral finasteride is the winner, but topical minoxidil comes in a very close second. Oral minoxidil, one milligram, is third. And topical minoxidil, 2% solution, twice a day, is quite a bit inferior to topical 5% solution twice a day. And you can also see that women using 5% minoxidil solution once a day have a much lower ranking than 5% solution twice a day. And I think that's really important because some of our data has taught us that women using 5% minoxidil once a day is pretty close to twice a day, and we should encourage patients to use it once a day. This data certainly tells us that 5% solution twice a day is quite a bit better than 5% solution once a day. Unfortunately, we don't have any data on minoxidil foam twice a day. But we can say that minoxidil foam once a day 
is not as good as minoxidil solution twice a day. Again, we don't know the data for minoxidil foam twice a day. There is no study of minoxidil foam twice a day. So oral finasteride, five milligrams tops the list in this study. Minoxidil solution, 5% twice a day is better than once daily. And oral minoxidil, one milligram is quite a bit better than 0.25 milligrams of oral minoxidil. I think that's helpful. I think as we think about low-dose oral minoxidil, we often feel that, okay, at these really low doses, they're both are pretty good options, but the sucra ranking suggests that one milligram is a lot better. One of the key things not to miss as you review this article is what is not here in this study. Dutasteride is not here, so we can't comment on the effectiveness of dutasteride. Spironolactone is not here. This is a study of 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. Bicalutamide is not here. Oral minoxidil 1.25 milligrams is not here. The authors found data on 1 milligram, meeting their criteria. But 1.25 is not here. 1.875 is not here. 2.5 is not here. Topical finasteride is not here. Topical minoxidil finasteride combo solutions are not here. And topical minoxidil foam twice daily is not here. So there's a number of things that are really important that are part of my everyday that are not here to allow us to compare. And I think that's really important. We don't know where spironolactone fits in. We don't know where higher doses of oral minoxidil fit in. I use a lot of minoxidil finasteride compounded agents. That's not here. And this study looks at data at 24 weeks. It doesn't look at data at 1,500 weeks, which is how long many patients are going to need to use this medication. The use of medications and treatments in androgenetic hair loss is lifelong. So we really want to know how patients do on all these treatments after 5 years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. In the literature, we have some data about the sustainability of these treatments in males, especially finasteride. We don't have any good long-term data in females using these treatments for female androgenetic hair loss. So this is a study at 24 weeks. But I really like this study. Every good study generates lots of good questions. And this study does exactly that. It shows us that 5 milligrams of finasteride should not be downplayed. Patients often ask me, every week, is there really evidence that finasteride works? Show me the evidence. And this data summarizes it for us. This data summarizes that finasteride, in a comparative study, looking at how finasteride stands up to topical minoxidil, oral minoxidil 1 milligram, that finasteride's at the top of the list, but it's not a ranking for all treatments. It's a ranking for finasteride and minoxidil protocols. And it's only a study looking at data at 24 weeks. So we need to keep that in mind. If one of these treatments was slower to respond than others, then it's possible that at 52 weeks, the rank order could be slightly different. But keep in mind that many treatments aren't here. And it's not a study of side effects. Remember, when you prescribe medications to treat to patients, we want to think about more than just effectiveness. We want to think about safety, affordability, feasibility, and effectiveness. That's what I call the SAFE principle, S-A-F-E. This is largely a study of effectiveness, the last principle. All these components of of safety, affordability, feasibility, and effectiveness go into every single patient counseling. Finasteride might not be an option for a patient who wishes to become pregnant. Finasteride may not be an option for someone with severe depression. Finasteride may rarely affect mood. Finasteride may not be an option for a 52-year-old woman with breast cancer. 
We don't have any good reason to believe that finasteride causes breast cancer, but there is some feeling amongst dermatologists that perhaps we need to be a little bit careful until we know for absolute certainty about using finasteride in women with a history of breast cancer. Now, there's no good evidence that finasteride causes breast cancer. In fact, there are a number of studies in the male literature which suggest that it probably does not. But out of an abundance of caution, that tends to be a way that finasteride is handled in the management of female pattern hair loss. And so there's much more that goes into prescribing medications than just looking at effectiveness scores. Things like weight gain, mood changes, fluid retention, teratogenicity to a fetus in pregnancy, heart palpitations, headaches, breast tenderness, decreased libido, all of these considerations go into prescribing because all of these things matter to people. This paper will certainly lead to a large number of patients asking for finasteride, probably even more so than now. I'm often asked by patients, can you please give me finasteride? Finasteride is not an appropriate treatment for many young women with female pattern hair loss. There are situations where it is prescribed, but it's not an appropriate treatment for many young women with female pattern hair loss. When you actually look at the sucra scores for finasteride, 5 milligrams, and minoxidil solution twice daily, what you can see is that the scores are not too far apart. The topical minoxidil 5% solution comes in a solid second place just behind oral finasteride 5 milligrams. I think that's important to be aware of. Is it not reasonable to prescribe topical minoxidil to patients as a first-line agent, given how well it performs in this particular study? That's up to each practitioner, of course, to interpret the data themselves, but we need to remember that topical minoxidil solution did quite well in standing up to oral finasteride 5 milligrams. So in summary, the authors examined 13 papers from the literature examining the effectiveness of various protocols of minoxidil and finasteride. Finasteride 5 milligrams tops the list. So we move on now to two studies in the medical literature which followed a New York Times article published August 2022 titled, An Old Medicine Grows New Hair for Pennies a Day, Doctors Say. Perhaps you're aware of this New York Times article. It created quite a buzz and a stir around the world. The view of that article was that oral minoxidil is an old medicine and people should be more aware of it. It's quite cheap, reasonably safe, and does a good job growing hair. It took the view that more and more of us should really check this out. And it seems that more and more of us have. When you look at Google Trends for oral minoxidil, and I would encourage you all to go to the Google Trends website and punch in oral minoxidil, it's quite amazing what the graph shows. There's a spike in August 2022, and that spike corresponds to the New York Times article publication. But the interest in oral minoxidil continues to climb after that. It doesn't return back to baseline. It continues to climb. So the interest in oral minoxidil is still intense. And I must say that since August 2022, our office has received questions about oral minoxidil every single day. And not a single day has gone by that I have not seen or heard or been called upon to manage side effects related to oral minoxidil. I think that's really important for us today to reflect upon and reflect upon the patients with swollen feet, swollen faces, excess of hair on their body, palpitations, dizziness, chest pain, shedding, weight gain, poor sleep, vision changes, rashes, and cough. There are many side effects with oral minoxidil that are possible. Unfortunately, many patients on oral minoxidil do great, so we mustn't forget that. And many patients don't have much in the way of side effects, but some do. And since the publication of this New York Times article, I have been transformed into a highly experienced OMSI, 
What is an OMSI? It's an oral minoxidil side effect expert. I prescribed quite a bit of oral minoxidil before the 2022 article came out. Probably I've been prescribing it for seven or eight years. But I've certainly become much more aware of oral minoxidil side effects in the last year. And I imagine that more of us around the world are being crowned OMSIs. Perhaps many listeners are today. The public carries the view that oral minoxidil is quite safe. Articles like the New York Times article does carry that viewpoint that it's reasonably safe. It does point out some side effects, but it, it does come with the viewpoint that it's pretty cheap, reasonably safe, and we should really consider it. The public also has the view that oral minoxidil has been hidden from them to some degree, and many of them want to start it. Not tomorrow, not today, but they want to start it yesterday. And that's really important. We have reviewed together countless side effects on our evidence-based hair podcasts and on the website. Just last week, season five, episode two, we reviewed a male patient who was getting oral minoxidil from the internet and presented with hypersensitivity pneumonitis, a lung side effect from oral minoxidil, and had to be hospitalized on three occasions. There's two wonderful studies of oral minoxidil side effects. You should check them out. Dr. Vanyo, 2021, study of 1,404 patients that were using oral minoxidil and surveyed physicians for what side effects were occurring in their patients. And a nice study by Sanabria of 435 individuals. The patients were phoned and asked directly, what side effects are you experiencing? There's a difference in side effects between those two studies. Up to 50% of patients had hypertrichosis, 10% headaches, up to 10% with pedal edema, 4% with palpitations, 1% with swelling around the eyes. Hypertrichosis, or increased hair on the body, was dose-dependent. A nice review by Jimenez Kahi in Dermatologic Therapy showed that at 0.25 milligrams, maybe 6% of people get some excess of hair, but that rises to 56% on those using 5 milligrams oral minoxidil. Swelling in the feet is also dose-dependent. And if you, a patient is using 5 milligrams of oral minoxidil, up to 7.6% of them will get swelling in the feet. 7.6% means 1 in 13. And so if you prescribe... 13 patients, a 5 milligram dose, which is not an unusual dose for males, one out of every 13 patients will be contacting your office because of oral minoxidil-related swelling in the feet. That's a pretty high number. Side effects occur at different times after starting. Within a few days, patients will develop a side effect of tachycardia, if they're going to develop that. Now, most don't develop that. But that's when heart palpitations set in, in the small proportion that do get that side effect. Within the first week, that's when lightheadedness occurs, if a patient is going to get lightheaded. Headaches occur within the first month. But what I'd like you to remember is that it takes a few months before you can really get a sense of how much the patient will develop fluid retention swelling around the eyes, and hypertrichosis. Now, some do develop this much quicker, as we'll see in a minute. But a patient who phones after a week or a month and says, Hey, Dr. Donovan, you, you told me about all these side effects. You told me I might get swelling in my feet. I might get hair on my body. I've been using this for a month. I'm doing great. So you don't need to worry. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. That's certainly great that those side effects aren't present after one month, but it can take up to three months before you get a good idea if these side effects are occurring. I was really interested to see two studies in the literature highlighting the impact of this New York Times article. DeSeer and colleagues published a nice study in the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. What they did was they analyzed commenters who posted comments on the New York Times website in response to the article. And they looked at differences in comments according to males and females. 
And there were 825 comments that were posted by the December 16th cutoff. 27% of the comments were from women, 35% from men, and in 38% it was unspecified. The authors looked at the different themes that the comments could be categorized into, and overall there was about 33 themes. Personal hair loss was the most common comment, commenters discussing their own hair loss. The second most common was comments about consideration being given to taking oral minoxidil for hair loss. There was distinct differences according to male commenters and female commenters. Women were more likely than men to comment about being open to trying oral minoxidil for hair loss, discussing the psychological component of hair loss, discussing the importance of hair loss in gender expression. They're more likely to post comments about recommendations to see a dermatologist. They're more likely to seek advice from another commenter. Men were more likely to discuss the need for clear dosing instructions, to discuss other coping mechanisms and tactics, like shaving the hair, to discuss the financial perspectives of Big Pharma, to discuss side effects and safety concerns about oral minoxidil, to discuss how the world views hair loss, to discuss distrust in pharmaceutical companies and the FDA, and to emphasize how common off-label drug usage is. So I really like this study. It, it summarizes some important differences according to males and females, and it's consistent with prior studies and highlights that the psychological component is very important to both males and females, and so is the impact of hair loss on gender expression. But these issues may be of greater relevance to women than to men, and prior studies support that notion. Of course, it's important to both, but perhaps of greater importance to women. A second study by Goodwin Cartwright, published in JAMA Network Open, in May, looked at changes in prescribing practices before and after this New York Times article came out. So authors from the U.S. set out to investigate the rates of new first-time prescriptions for oral minoxidil before and after the New York Times article. Really interesting study. They used a database known as the Truveda database. And this database holds electronic records from eight different health systems in 13 states. And the authors looked at the database for first-time oral minoxidil prescriptions before the article and after the article. And they calculated the rate of first-time oral minoxidil prescriptions. There was 6,541 6, patients that were first-time oral minoxidil users in the study. 2,800 individuals received the prescription in the seven months before the New York Times article, and 3,695 received prescriptions in the five months after the publication. They calculated the weekly rate of first-time oral minoxidil prescriptions per 10,000 outpatient encounters, and it was found to be higher in the eight weeks after the publication in the New York Times compared to the eight weeks before the publication. And this JAMA Network Open publishes articles free online, and you can check it out. And when, the, when you look at a graph of first-time prescriptions, you see this huge spike in August, September, and this corresponds to the new first-time users. But what's so interesting is the rate of prescriptions continues to be higher in the months following. It doesn't return right back down to baseline. And overall, there was about a doubling of new prescriptions following the New York Times article. I'm about a doubling in males and just under a doubling in females. So overall, the authors point out that there was this tremendous spike and then there was a decrease in prescriptions. But when you actually look at the data, it's, it is remaining above baseline in the months that follow the New York Times article. 
And I think that's really important. It's clear that media coverage of health-related news is powerful, and it can be associated with changes in clinician practices and patient behaviors. And it appears that the interest in oral minoxidil has really increased after the New York Times article, and so have prescriptions. So not only are people interested in knowing about it, but they're actually going out and acting on it. The authors point out here that prescribing patterns were not sustained. So there's a spike and then a decrease. But I think the data here shows that prescribing practices were still quite a bit above baseline. So they didn't drop back. And so I do think prescriptions are quite a bit higher than baseline. And with the Google Trends data showing the interest in oral, oral minoxidil still on the rise, even in the present day, I don't think we can assume that five months is long enough to understand the effects on the public. And so the authors here really point out that there's a spike and then a tremendous drop. But I think that five months isn't long enough to really understand oral minoxidil prescribing practices. It takes time for our patients to process this information, to make an appointment. In some places in the world, it takes time to get into a dermatologist. It takes time to see how your friend or family does on oral minoxidil before you work up the confidence to go in. And it takes physicians time to see how your first patient does or your second patient does on oral minoxidil. Make sure that they don't get any of these side effects. When you first prescribe oral minoxidil, it kind of sounds scary that you can get swelling in the feet, chest palpitations, hair growth all over the body, swelling around the eyes, poor sleep. But once you start prescribing it at a low dose and work up, you realize that, gee, most patients do quite well. And then you prescribe it to more patients. So five months isn't long enough to really understand the, the full impact. But nevertheless, this article really does a, a nice job characterizing new prescriptions in this Truveda database. But in my experience, there's, there's not been a real waning of interest. And in fact, more and more patients are asking about oral minoxidil spontaneously. And what I have noticed is a tremendous increase in older individuals, 60, 70, and 80, asking about oral minoxidil. I don't know if that truly is a trend, but it certainly is palpable in my practice in individuals in those age groups being very interested in oral minoxidil. Oral minoxidil is off-label. We have to remember that topical minoxidil is approved for certain age groups, 18 to 60 or 65, but it's off-label in 70 and 80 and 90 year olds. And that's for good reason. You know, I think we do have to be careful about prescribing oral minoxidil to 80 year olds, 90 year olds, 100 year olds. I think we have to think carefully about the health of the individual, other medications they're on. Oral minoxidil increases the chance of fluid retention in individuals that are on certain blood pressure medications like calcium channel blockers. If oral minoxidil does drop blood pressure even a little bit, then that can increase cardiac demand and increase the chances of ischemia. So I think we just have to be a little bit more respectful in certain age groups. But nevertheless, oral minoxidil is definitely an option for many of our patients in ways that it hadn't been in the past. So we go on now to a study by Mir Bonifay in Actus Dermo Syphiliographicus, May 2023, a really nice study by these authors of two people that developed swelling around the eyes with low-dose oral minoxidil. Periorbital edema refers to swelling around the eyes, and it can occur with low-dose oral minoxidil. Puffiness can be severe. It can look like an allergic reaction. We spend a long time talking with patients about swelling in the feet. Your shoes may fit tighter. If your shoes fit tighter, let me know. We don't spend as much time talking about swelling around the eyes, and we certainly don't spend much time talking about weight gain. You know, if you gain two kilos or five kilos or two pounds or eight pounds or five pounds, let me know. It might not be because you've been eating more. It may be because of fluid retention, even if you don't have swelling in the feet. 
So we don't give a lot of thought to periorbital edema, but it can occur with oral minoxidil, and estimates in the literature suggest that it can occur in up to 1% of users. And again, do check out Dr. Vagno's study and Dr. Sanabria's study. These are great studies. Dr. Vagno's study was a study of 1,404 patients, where they asked physicians and practitioners, how commonly do you think your patients get these side effects? Well, practitioners thought that about 0.3% of their patients had these side effects. Sanabria's study looked at what happens when you actually call these patients on the phone and say, I'm going to ask you a number of side effects. You tell me if you got this side effect or not. That study suggested that 1% of patients had periorbital edema with oral minoxidil. So the suggestion here, not to be missed, is that when you ask patients directly, you get a three times higher rate of periorbital edema. So that means that we as clinicians probably underdiagnose periorbital edema at least three times less than what it really occurs. And it's probably much higher than 1%. Why is that? Because some periorbital edema happens and then goes away. Some patients develop swelling around the eyes. and They don't really relate it to the oral minoxidil. They think they're just puffy in the morning. Some people are puffy in the morning. Some people look different in the morning. So the authors here report two patients with periorbital edema associated with low-dose oral minoxidil. I like this study. It's free, online. Do check it out. First patient was a 40-year-old male who started taking 5 milligrams oral minoxidil nightly. Remember, low-dose oral minoxidil is anything 5 milligrams or less. Within four weeks, he developed swelling around the eyelids in the morning. Remember, I mentioned that swelling can take up to three months to occur, but in some patients it occurs pretty quickly. He developed swelling in the morning, and throughout the day it resolved. The next day again, swelling in the morning, and it resolved during the day. No signs of swelling in the feet, no signs of swelling around the, the lungs or the heart. He reduced his dose to three milligrams and had complete resolution. So periorbital edema doesn't necessarily mean you have to abandon this treatment, but it does mean that you should reduce the dose. The second patient was a 37-year-old female who started one milligram of oral minoxidil nightly for treatment of her androgenetic hair loss. Within just two weeks, she developed periorbital edema. Similar to patient one, the swelling happened in the morning and resolved during the day. But here, the resolution occurred within just 60 minutes. There were no other signs of edema, like swelling in the feet or swelling around the heart or lungs. Patient ultimately decided to stop treatments, and everything resolved in seven days. She then decided to reintroduce the oral minoxidil at half the dose, 0.5 milligrams, and she did not have any periorbital edema. So really nice study with really nice images. Do check it out. You can punch into your computer morning periorbital edema related to low-dose oral minoxidil, and out will pop this study. A really nice case series reminding us of the fluid retention that can occur. Some patients develop swelling around the eyes without swelling in the feet and without swelling in the rest of the body. And I think periorbital edema is probably more common than we realize. Dr. Vagno's wonderful study puts the risk at 0.3%. Sanabria's nice study puts it at 1%. And it's dose-dependent. Jimenez Kahi reminds us that this fluid retention can be dose-dependent. But all in all, this is probably underestimated. And before I leave this topic, I want to remind you that we can never be so confident as to claim that swelling is dose-dependent, so really, really low doses. This is risk-free. I'm going to start you on 0.25 milligrams. This is such a low dose, you don't need to worry. Dr. Delova's 2022 study reminds us that even low doses can rarely have serious consequences. And Dr. Delova and her group published this very nice article in JAD Case Reports, also free. 
pericardial, pleural effusion, and anasarca, a rare complication of low-dose oral minoxidil for hair loss. Check it out. You'll see the very nice report of the 40-year-old woman with frontal fibrosing alopecia who developed widespread fluid retention within just three weeks of low-dose oral minoxidil. So low-dose oral minoxidil is a wonderful treatment to add to your toolbox, but I think we need to respect this treatment. It can cause fluid retention issues. It can cause chest pain in some of our users. It can cause hypertrichosis. It can cause a whole range of side effects. And so finally, I conclude with a nice study by Rosardo and colleagues, Anti-Seizure Medication-Induced Alopecia, a Literature Review, a study in the journal Medicines from June 2023. We need to know about hair loss from medications. How common is hair loss from antidepressants, blood pressure medications, cholesterol medications, the new biologic agents, blood thinners, Anti-seizure medications are on that list of medications that we need to have some familiarity with. Why? Because seizure disorders are not uncommon in the world. 1% of the U.S. has a seizure disorder at the present time, has epilepsy. And over the lifetime of us, 1 in 26 or 27 people will have a diagnosis of epilepsy. And so patients will come in with a history of epilepsy, and they will come in with being prescribed anti-seizure medications. And so we need to know about the risk of hair loss with anti-seizure medications. And this very nice article by Rosardo and colleagues summarizes for us the risk of hair loss. The authors start out by reminding us that these medications are really important because they can convert an individual from having seizures to being seizure-free at least 70% of the time. Why do patients stop anti-seizure medications? Well, the two most common reasons are weight gain, and number two, you guessed it, hair loss. And so we can play a very important role in helping patients work through, is it likely that their anti-seizure medication is responsible for their hair loss, or is it another reason? And sometimes it's another reason. Sometimes it's dose-dependent, and we can reduce the dose if the neurologist agrees. Of course, sometimes with a reduced dose, the patient experiences seizures. But often with stopping, the patient experiences seizures. And so these are really important decisions because seizures can have a tremendous impact on the patient. And some seizures, if they're severe enough, can be fatal. And so these are really important decisions. And these are extremely emotional decisions for patients. And patients are very willing, in my experience, to give up anti-seizure medications. And if we can help identify if truly the medication is the culprit in the hair loss, we can have a, an important role in the management of this patient's seizures. So I work closely with neurologists often in evaluating medication-induced hair loss. So these authors looked for a number of terms, and found 115 studies with 1,656 individuals reporting hair loss from anti-seizure medications. The literature has a number of anti-seizure medications causing hair loss. The three most common, by far, not even close, are valproic acid, valproate, lamotrigine, and carbamazepine. But many, many other anti-seizure medications have case reports and small studies to be aware of. So let's talk about some of these. We'll talk first about valproic acid, carbamazepine, and lamotrigine, because these have the most studies. So valproate is a common medi medication for treating generalized and focal seizures. It's also used for bipolar disorder, neuropathic pain, and migraines. The prevalence of valproate causing hair loss 
is all over the place if you're looking for a statistic. It ranges from 0.5% right up to 24%. 0.5% is not super scary of a statistic. That's 1 in 200. But if you get up to the possibility that one out of every four users of valproic acid can have hair loss, that's certainly more concerning. And so it's frustrating when you have statistics that are so widespread. And hair loss typically occurs after three to six months, but it may not occur just within two or three months like we're trained with classic telogen effluvium. And the reason may be because valproate may cause a telogen effluvium, but it may cause hair loss from other mechanisms that take longer to develop, like biotin deficiency, mineral deficiency, vitamin D deficiency. It may take longer than just two or three months for those to reach their threshold to cause hair loss. Carbamazepine is used to treat focal seizures, bipolar disorder, trigeminal neuralgia, and the range is anywhere from 0.3 to 6%. And hair loss occurs in about two to four months. Lamotrigine is used to treat epilepsy. It's used to treat generalized tonic-clonic seizures, focal seizures, the atypical absence seizures, myoclonic seizures, and other types as well. And the authors report that the prevalence is around 0.8% of lamotrigine-causing hair loss. So the three most common anti-seizure medications in the medical journals are valproate, carbamazepine, and lamotrigine. And I remember how common these cause hair loss by the first letter, V, C, and L for valproate, carbamazepine, and lamotrigine. V for valproate reminds me very, because this is very much more likely to cause hair loss now, it could be just 0.5%. That's pretty low. But it could be up to 24% of users. The C in carbamazepine makes me remember C for central, right in the middle, 03 to 6%. And L in lamotrigine reminds me of low. And so those are helpful as I sort of reflect on causes of hair loss. Now, the patient who comes in to see you on lamotrigine certainly could have a hair loss from lamotrigine. And the patient who comes in to see you with concerns and they're on carbamazepine or valproate may not have hair loss at all due to these anti-seizure medications. So we need to take good histories and do good examinations. But this gives us a framework. Lamotrigine is low, valproate high, very high. Leviteracetam, or Keppra, was approved in 1999 by the FDA for management of epilepsy. It rarely causes hair loss. 0.4% was the statistic that was introduced into the literature. Hair loss starts anywhere from 3 to 8 weeks after starting. Gabapentin causes hair loss in around 2%. It's often used for neuropathic pain. I use gabapentin often for the management of scalp pain, scalp dysesthesias, frustrating pain that's non-responsive in scarring alopecias. Hair loss can occur in one study even after a week. Topiramate can cause hair loss in around 1-2% to of users. Hair loss starts around 2-3 to three months, if it occurs at all. Phenytoin, or Dilantin, as you may know it as, causes hair loss in about 0.3% of users, so pretty uncommon. And most patients who do have hair loss in the literature on phenytoin have phenytoin hypersensitivity syndrome, and that may be the cause as opposed to pure telogen effluvium from phenytoin. Pregabalin, which you may know as Lyrica, rarely causes hair loss, less than 1%. 1 in 143 users in one study. The authors round out a few other anti-seizure medications. Parampanel, causing hair loss in under 0.05% of users. Phenobarbital, in rare cases, 
Vigabatrin, anywhere from 0.9 to up to 10% of users, and teagabine in about 1% of users. So most studies in the literature are with those three agents I mentioned, valproate, carbamazepine, and lamotrigine, and most of the other anticonvulsants are uncommonly reported in the literature. The ranges can be all over the place, which makes things pretty frustrating. I like to have statistics that are quotable, point on, and so it's frustrating with some of these statistics when you have ranges that are so widespread. That just means our data is, is not so great. So if you rank them from most likely to cause hair loss to least likely to cause hair loss, we probably put valproate at the top, vigabatrin, carbamazepine, topiramate, gabapentin, phenobarbital, lamotrigine, pregabalin, levetiracetam, and phenytoin in that order. That's it for this week. I want to thank you so much for joining me for this week's Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. We reviewed five studies. We reviewed Gupta's 2023 study of 11 treatment protocols involving minoxidil and finasteride and how well these rank in the treatment of female pattern hair loss. The winner, 5 milligrams of finasteride coming in second place with a very good showing, was 5% minoxidil solution twice daily, almost as effective in this study as 5 milligrams finasteride. We reviewed two really nice studies which followed the August 18th, 2022 New York Times article. An old medicine grows new hair for pennies a day, doctors say. Desir and colleagues in the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery reviewed commenters, male and female commenters on that New York Times article, and we reviewed some really important differences in how males and females view hair loss. We reviewed Goodwin Cartwright's really nice study in JAMA Network Open of new minoxidil, oral minoxidil prescriptions before the New York Times article and after the New York Times article. And we saw that prescriptions spiked in August and September, but remained above baseline. Then we looked at Mir Bonifay's very nice case series of those two patients with periorbital edema in the morning with low-dose oral minoxidil. And when these individuals reduced their dose by roughly half, the periorbital edema went away. And we concluded with Risardo's and colleagues' nice study in medicines of telogen effluvium from anti-seizure medications. And we talked about the three most common anti-seizure medications in the literature, valproate, carbamazepine, and lamotrigine. And really, any anti-seizure medication has the potential to cause hair loss. But these are the three winners in terms of the most frequently reported. But we need good histories. Hair loss typically occurs several weeks to several months after starting. In some studies, it's dose-dependent. But if a patient has been on lamotrigine for seven years and developed hair loss last week, it's probably not the lamotrigine. There's other factors that could be relevant to the hair loss. Stress, low iron, thyroid problems, other medications, infections, influenza, COVID-19, other illnesses in the body. These are the likely culprits as opposed to the lamotrigine. Finally, before concluding, let me say that if you're a hair loss practitioner, perhaps a dermatologist or a hair transplant surgeon or a family physician who sees hair loss or a cosmetic physician, or you're a trainee in dermatology or plastic surgery, or you're a fellow in one of these programs and you'd like to dive in and learn about hair loss with me, consider applying to the evidence-based hair training program. We meet once a week, either a Wednesday afternoon or a Thursday morning, depending on what part of the world you live in. And we meet for 87 weeks from January 2024 to August 2025. This is an intensive but fun program. 
that molds and sculpts the participant into a hair loss expert with knowledge and skills to engage in lifelong, evidence-based, patient-centered practice. And details about the program and everything you need to know about it are found on our website at donovanmedical.com forward slash donovan-hair-academy or on our Donovan Medical YouTube channel, which is Donovan Medical. And you can also email the Academy at info at donovanhairacademy.com and someone will get back to you about any of your questions about the program. Thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate very much your interest in the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast and the comments that you do send to us every week. Next week we're back. It's the second Monday of the month of August. And we're talking about a number of incredible studies in alopecia areata. Research in alopecia areata is flourishing. We will review five studies that are really important for us all to know about. And I look forward to seeing you back here on another episode of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Bye for now.